Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before we begin today, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this uh, podcast. It's called wealthformula.com. That's where you can sign up for a number of our resources, including our accredited investor club. Our investor club is in business. Uh, we are uh, we're getting ready to launch a few things in the next uh, few weeks here. So make sure you get on the list if you are an accredited invest investor. What that means is you make $200,000 a year, at least um, as an individual. You've been making that for a couple of years and anticipate continuing to do so or $300,000 if you are filing jointly or you have a million dollars outside uh, net worth outside of your personal residence. Anyway, if you meet those criteria and are interested in potentially seeing some deal flow, get onboarded by going to wealthformula.com and investing on Investor Club. Anyway, let's talk a little bit today uh, about, well, investing, right? This is uh, this is what this show's all about. It's about personal finance and uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, I've been going back um, to some basic topics lately uh, in this back to school series. I'm going to have another one uh, this week as well. But today uh, we're going to talk to uh, Zolfi Ali. Now, Zolfi's a broker dealer and investment advisor, but he's not your run of the mill type in this field. He's been uh, in the middle of the action uh, on Wall Street is a mergers and acquisitions guy for J.P. Morgan and Bank of America in the 90s. Uh, he's worked in private equity. He's ran uh, a multi-billion dollar sovereign wealth fund as the chief investment officer. Uh, he did that over a decade. Uh, I've seen photos of him with uh, world leaders like UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, former Prime Minister Tony Blair and others as part of his position. And to say the least, he's not one of those uh, six-week course advisor types out there. Um, and he has now opened his doors to individual investors like us. And he's uh, using institutional principles uh, to help clients grow their money. Now, as you can imagine, those principles are quite different from your typical advisor. And I'm, and I'm happy to endorse him uh, to anyone looking for a third-party financial advisor. People have asked me for a recommendation throughout the years on this, and I've not been able to give one until now. Now, again, I don't actually use a financial advisor myself because I am, well, you know, I am kind of uh, hard-headed and uh, very, uh, very clear about what it is that I want to do. But 
But then again, that's my full-time gig, right? That's what I'm doing all the time. And you might have a job and you might be busy and want somebody to help you with that. So that's certainly an option. Now, in this episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, I'm going to speak to Zolfi about his perspective on asset allocation and the current economy. So make sure to tune in uh, after these messages. And one more thing. Uh, again, I am later on this week going to do another one of these back to school episodes. And then this is sort of like, uh, sort of uh, kind of coming off of this episode, which is kind of funny, which is, you know, Zolvi and, and, you know, his high, you know, higher institutional level uh, asset allocation uh, information. But later on in the week, I'm going to give you a back to school episode where I just give you a little insight into how I design my own investment portfolio, um, you know it's kind of one of those things, don't do this at home kind of things. But, um, you know, a lot of people have asked me the way I think about things. And so I'm going to do that. So look for that episode of uh, Back to School uh, later on in the week. But for now, uh, let's talk to, uh, uh, you know, I guess one of the parents in the room, uh, Zulfi Ali, after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Zolfi Alina. Zolfi is an investment and capital markets professional with over 25 years of experience uh, in an institutional setting with global financial firms. He started his career in the 1990s on Wall Street, working with a boutique investment bank in San Francisco, where he advised international investment companies on their investments in the U.S. across technology, biotech, and consumer sectors. He, he then continued his career in investment banking for 15 years at uh, global banks in, in New York and London, such as Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, while focusing on a variety of activities, including IPOs, corporate mergers, leveraged buyouts, high-yield bonds, and leveraged loans. After that, he got recruited into a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East as the chief investment officer and um, ran that fund for several years. Uh, before coming back to the U.S. Zolfi, uh, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Buck. Great, great so, to join you. So, yeah, this is uh, obviously a, a huge background in, uh, in finance, and I appreciate uh, you being part of uh, the show. And also, as, uh, as we'll get into a bit, uh, a partnership on the side of helping us uh, with a broker-dealer and an RIA that is actually associated now um, 
associated in the sense of, of, of uh, you know, just uh, being able to help us, help some of our investors uh, guide this kind of confusing time and place uh, in, 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 in history here. Um, but before we do that, why don't you, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about your background. I mean, there's some big stuff here, you know, M&A, big banks, JP Morgan, sovereign wealth funds. Tell me what, uh, you know, what, what, if, what are some of the things that you learned throughout this time that people who are in the retail investing space don't really think about? And, you know, what, what are some of those really key takeaways when you look at, you know, institutional investing and, you know, high, ultra high net worth individuals investing? What do they do differently than people who are on the retail side usually? Yeah, I mean, I think the first area is is the level of diligence. I mean, frankly, uh, a retail investor is probably, you know, not equipped and doesn't have the time to really spend the time that is necessary to to diligence and investment opportunity. And by diligence, I mean, it's a, it's a word that gets thrown out there a lot, but I don't think people understand what, what that necessarily means. So, for example, as a broker dealer, when I'm when I'm leading a offering uh, through the broker dealer, uh, I have requirements that the regulators, the SEC, in fact, imposes that I undertake. Uh, and that is a full diligence of the issuer company. And that's everything from, you know, diligencing their business, uh, their, their, their owners of that company, the, the management team of that company. So we're talking about background checks, criminal checks. Uh, we do business diligence in the sense that we're vetting their assumptions, uh, historical performance, making sure that what they have represented is accurate and is not overstated or does not omit material facts. Uh, we go into legal issues, legal liabilities, any kind of pending litigation, environmental issues that companies might face. There's, there's just this very, I think, you know, detailed process that an institutional investor in general will undertake. And the resources there, again, are different in the sense that, you know, if a retail investor gets an opportunity to invest in a deal, they get an offering memorandum and, and go ahead and read it. Uh, when I get involved in leading that type of a deal, I'm in direct contact with that issuer. So the management team, the founder, uh, I call their uh, suppliers. I'll call people that they say that they have a, uh, a material contract with, and I'll validate that. So third-party validation. Uh, I'll do, I'll check independent research to make sure their assumptions on their financial modeling is in line with what the industry or, or experts believe in. Uh, so there's a whole there's a whole spectrum of diligence that has to be done uh, that in any typical institutional investor is going to do, uh, and that is very very much in line with what a broker dealer uh, is is also uh, required to do in that process. So I think one of the the lessons here, at least for me, during this period, because we we saw some uh, pretty bad stuff go down during this space, you know, when, when financial, when, when, when the, uh, when the economy is not great, sometimes it, that's when you, you see who's actually kind of, uh, you know, fraudulent things sort of come to light and that kind of yeah. thing. And in this podcast ecosystem, we saw, 
you know, a, a handful of things that really went down, which were really unfortunate, including various um, type of Ponzi schemes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, what, what do you think went wrong? I mean, in, in those types of situations, because I know some of these people and they're not criminals, they were raising capital for things, but I think they just, yeah. you know, what, what do well, you think? That's, that's the issue, right, Mark, is that, you know, you have well-meaning, well-intentioned intermediaries uh, who aren't, you know, they're just not doing the work, right? So I think that's, that's fundamentally the issue. I mean, when I... When or I they may not be sophisticated enough to do the work, right? I mean, I think that's that's a well, big... Well, I, think, I think that's, yeah, I think that goes hand in hand. So I think there's a, a level of sophistication to not even understand that that certain work needs to be done. So so that's part A. Part B, when they do understand work that needs to be done, do they know how to undertake that work and to get it done to the extent that they, that they need to get it done? I mean... The stuff that I heard recently uh, that were such, uh, you know, disaster stories, it seemed like at least one or two of them were pretty obviously uncoverable in the sense that there was one operator that no one got a chance to see their facilities or their, you know, their their operations because they kept everyone out, for example. Um, so I think I think there's there is sophistication, there is uh, a lack of sophistication in those situations, uh, resources, time. Uh, me, you know, the best meaningful person can still uh, get get themselves involved in a situation that that ends up going you know belly up if if they if they don't do the work, and that I think that's the issue. Yeah, I mean, and frankly, that's why we've kind of added this additional layer of partnership we want to cost, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, at the end of the day, I saw what was happening out there. And I want to make sure that anybody, you know, in our group, obviously, a lot of it is real estate. Um, you know, real estate is a little bit easier to um, to digest, right? Like, you mean, you have a big yeah. building there, you bought, you know, you're buying that. And there may be some additional value obviously even there too, and in, in, in having somebody take a look at um, assumptions, underwriting, things like that in any given deal. Uh, but, you know, especially on things that are involved with business type things, I think it's, yeah. it's really challenging. I think in, for me personally, it's not probably a, a strength. And so in, in addition to, to look at individual businesses necessarily and decide whether or not they're worth investing in. So, so in order to bring that to our group, uh, you know, we've engaged with you on that front and, and that's, uh, that's hopefully going to be very helpful. Um, now I want to, I want to switch a little bit over uh, to the other part of your business. Now the business is called Valerity. Explain the difference between yep. Valerity. Uh, it's a broker dealer and then Valerity as a, um, yeah, they're two, they're two separate entities. They have different different functions. They're registered independently uh, with the regulators. So the one we, we've been discussing, Valerity Group, is a, a broker-dealer, SEC-registered, FINRA member broker-dealer. Uh, as I mentioned, what the function there is really to uh, raise capital uh, for issuers. Uh, and so that could be you know, a real estate company that could be a, a comp 
you know, a, a private equity type company investment. Uh, it could be a fund. Uh, right. So you just you there, just completed a big uh, round of due diligence on the ATM fund, for example, and that was one that a lot of right. people wanted to see have significant due diligence done on. So that would be an example. That's an example. That's an example where where I've gone in, met the management team, gone through their you know their their financials, background checks, legal entity checks, uh, you know, talking to the regulator that regulates that business. Uh, all that kind of stuff that that you know you would be required to do, and so so that's that's an example of what the broker dealer does. So yes, it represents uh, it represents the issuer in the sense that we want to make sure as a broker dealer that the issuer is presenting themselves in an accurate way. If there's anything missing, omitted, non-factual, that that gets flushed out and that gets disclosed to the investor. And then when the investor, when I'm engaging with the investor, the SEC actually says that I have a fiduciary responsibility to the investor. So I have to make sure that it is a suitable investment for the investor and that everything that needs to be done has been done from my side, from a diligence perspective, before I can recommend it to an investor. So, you know, I've got responsibilities on on both to the both the issuer and the investor as a broker dealer, and that's regulated to be that way. Uh, the other business you mentioned, the RIA, which stands for Registered Investment Advisor, that is a business called Valerity Wealth. And there it is a business to help investors uh, with their investment strategies, to help them develop investment uh, plans, asset allocation, financial plans. And so that's working with high net individuals, accredited investors, uh, family offices, in, in some cases, even some small businesses where you know we develop a strategy based on that entity or that individual's particular situation, what their objectives are from a financial perspective, and then developing a plan, an investment strategy, an asset allocation model, all of that that's suitable and tries to achieve the goals of that of that individual or, or entity. So if you, you're coming at this as an interesting, uh, from an in interesting uh, perspective, because you've, uh, you know, you've worked for major banks, JP Morgan, uh, uh, Bank of America, um, you know, you've been through a, a huge acquisitions, M&As, and then you run a, a sovereign wealth fund. Um, what do you take, like philosophically from those experiences I mean, obviously, you're going to be different from a guy who comes out doing six months and gets an RA. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so what's what do you take from those like experiences of yeah. really kind of you know massive uh, investment responsibilities, and how do you how can you apply that to retail yeah. investing? Well, listen, I think I think the the beauty of it is that you know when when I look at the approach that we took at the Sovereign Wealth Fund, right? Sovereign Wealth Fund can be considered a big family office, to be quite frank, right? So it's got its own assets, it's got its own liabilities, it's got its own cash flow needs. There's certain objectives that they're trying to achieve. Some of them are financial, some of them are non-financial. And so you're looking at, you know, across the globe and across all the different asset classes, how do you construct an investment strategy that optimizes what you're trying to address with the with that sovereign wealth fund, and and so you can actually you can actually then 
apply that same approach to individuals. You don't have to be a sovereign wealth fund to get the benefit of that approach. You can be an accredited investor and have an advisor with the appropriate toolkit look at all the different asset classes that are available for you, look at an investment strategy that is comprehensive. Uh, if you're an investor that is particularly interested in real estate or alternative assets, to be able to help vet some of those investment opportunities, to build a portfolio that is complementary to those asset classes, right? right? And so there's there's a lot of synergies. I think you know the the differences will be size of investment, so that that can limit certain asset classes or how you can get access to certain asset classes. Um, it might limit you know the 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 type of fees you pay. Very very large institutions are able to really push down fees and negotiate hard on a one on one basis. Uh, is you know retail investors will end up paying a bit more, but you know again there's there's gives and puts. The institutional side, very large investors, they actually have asset classes that they cannot really invest in because they're too big and they move the markets too much. And that's where the retail investor has a benefit, right? And, and they can't buy investors. ATM machines. <laughs> sure, sure. Or, or, or you could even argue that, you know, er, earlier st stage when the multifamily right. residential industry was taking off, it's not an industry that really lent itself to institutional investors. It's getting there now. And institutional investors become kind of a good buyer of portfolios, but you know that's that's another example I think that is particularly tuned to retail and high net worth individuals. So um, you know my uh, one of the reasons I thought that uh, your service on the RIA side might be of of value to my listeners is because at the end of the day, like listen, my. I'm very aggressive and I'm very, um, I, I, I'm very opinionated and I know what I want to do with my money, right? No. Not everybody is that way and that's fine. It's, you know, personal finance is personal, but at no. the end of the day, there's people who want help. Yeah. And what I have been trying to avoid for years is, is sending them to somebody who's just going to like, tell them to do things because it's going to help them with their own retirement, frankly, you know, from an AUM yeah. perspective. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and I obviously given your background and, and what you're doing and what you've done, um, you know, we we're start, you know, you're somebody I'm trusting with my group here. Tell us um, from that perspective, like what, if somebody comes into you right now and says, Hey, you know, I, I listened to Buck and, and I, you know, I don't want to be a 90% real estate like him, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but what's a reasonable thing to do? Like, where do you start? Like, how do you, yeah. how do you start to look at it from a portfolio? That's not just a boring portfolio, like that you're just buying ETFs and yeah. hoping and wishing and, and yeah. you know, like, how do you, how would you break it down differently than, you know, some of these other uh, individuals? Yeah, I think, listen, I think the the fact of the matter is the, the the vast majority of the advisor industry is coming from, you know, platforms where the primary product has been public equities and fixed income, right? And they don't, they don't know anything else. Uh, and so either you're, 
in a 60-40 portfolio or an 80-20 portfolio. And that's that's kind of the extent of it. And 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 that's that's by design. Um what what I'd like to you know, be able to bring to investors is much more flexibility to, than that, right? And and listen, there are there are going to be situations where, you know, depending on uh, an individual's financial situation, that a a you know uh, a large allocation to very safe government securities is going to be the right answer. Uh, but if if you're looking for long term growth. And you want to have, you know, a diversified approach. Then what I'm able to bring to to my clients is an alternative, uh, a, a good mix of alternatives. And that's not just real estate. Uh, it's going to include private equity. It's going to include other asset classes. Uh, we have, you know, we're developing and we have partnerships with operators in in lots of different asset classes. Um, there's a platform that is doing roll-ups on the private equity side. There is a partner that is working on aircraft purchases that they then lease out uh, to uh, to airlines. Uh, so there's a slew of different asset classes. The, the benefit there is that diversification uh, should continue to give good performance and enhance your returns and at the same time mitigate risks and and that's that's really the you know the the, the rainbow that we're we're after is that by including alternative assets to your portfolio uh that you're going to you're going to enhance your returns as well as mitigate your downside risk just from diversification perspective and certainly you know considerations i think of tax benefits and all that i mean you have a yeah. you have a you know, a, a, a broader perspective on some of those things as well and, and, and resources as well. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, I think going back to your question as to some of the differences between, you know, when you're at a sovereign wealth fund investing versus, you know, working with individuals and family offices, the tax side of it is probably the biggest difference, right? There are structural and tax related benefits uh, that, you know, individual investors can take advantage of that institutions cannot take advantage of. And so that also leads to opportunities that I think, you know, can be optimized. And we do have, as part of our registered investment advisor, uh, Valerity Wealth, we do have an in-house uh, tax expert as well uh, that, that, will, that will work with individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's shift into, um, What's going on in, in 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 the economy now? Obviously, unparalleled times. Um, we go through COVID, huge amounts of money printing, uh, huge amounts of uh, you know in, the availability of, of of cheap money. Uh, yeah. You know the market's going crazy. Real estate market's going crazy. Everything's frothy. Um, now interest rates go up at sort of a um, I think I, I think from a, from the perspective of the rate of increase, I don't think it's ever been this high, yeah, historically, and then inflation seems to be cooling down. What what's your take on where we're, where we're at and where we're headed? Yeah, I mean, I I I, I echo your your uh, sentiment there. It has been an extremely confusing market. 
Uh, like you said, you know, if we were sitting back here in March of 2022 and someone told us we're going to have 11 rate hikes in the next 18 months, we would have pretty much assumed the economy would be cracked, we'd be in a recession, unemployment would have spiked, housing market destroyed. Uh, but here we are, right? Uh, the GDP growth has been strong. Uh, second quarter was, you know, above, you know, 2%. It looks like third quarter is on a, even a healthier clip than that. Uh, unemployment is still low, around 4%. And then we've got, you know, high housing uh, market, which is holding relatively well. There's, yeah, there's some dysfunction in terms of supply demand, uh, but the demand is there is there, uh, and it's healthy. Uh, and then corporates are doing well, too, uh, despite labor shortages, despite increasing labor costs, despite supply chain disruptions, increased financing costs, uh, corporate corporates are doing Pretty good, better than expected. Second quarter uh, earnings came in uh, better than Wall Street had been projected. And now there's been a bunch of revisions that third quarter is going to be better from there. So, you know, the question I think is, is how? How is this possible? Um, I'm not an economist, Buck, uh, but here it goes. I mean, I, I actually think, you know, the short answer is, is the consumer. The consumer yeah. has driven the strength in the economy. The consumer, as you mentioned, got a huge amount of subsidies during COVID. They came out with two trillion dollars of, you know, cash subsidies, subsidies from the government, and an extremely favorable job environment. Um, it, you know, there's data out there that suggests that the consumer has worked through about two thirds of that stockpile of cash. So, still sitting on, you know, what 600, 600 plus billion dollars um, in on their balance sheets. Uh, from that from that uh, subsidy era, era. Uh, the job market still remains favorable. Labor markets are still tight. Uh, wages are increasing, um, and the by the way, wages are increasing ahead of inflation. So that's that's also uh, quite a problem. I mean, quite, quite a problem in the long term. But I think from a uh, strength of the economy, it's continuing to boost the economy. So you know, at the end of the day, the consumer represents seventy percent of GDP. Uh, sometimes I think we forget that it is a major driver of our economy and the consumer has been healthy and employed and out there spending. So I think that's that's really what's been going on um, from, you know, the, the the health that we see in the economy. I think the Fed is pretty much where it wants to be at this moment. Uh, inflation has been moderating, you know, it was up, uh, I think, 3.2 percent in July We'll get another reading in, uh, I think next week, we'll get the next uh, inflation reading. Um, job market has been moderating a bit. You know, you've got unemployment now kind of coming close to 4% from 3%. You've got more labor participation, which which also signals that people are out there trying to get jobs. So that's good. Um, you know, consumers, but the consumer is still spending and and uh, yeah. and even that is moderating. So, so net, net, I think, you know, it's it's pretty, you know, I think uh, understood the Fed is in a bit of a waiting mode. They're waiting for more data. The next meeting is September. I don't think anybody expects them to hike. I think November, maybe they hike or maybe they push it off till December. I think the data is going to be the big uh, question mark. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll stick in this kind of restrictive stance that they are with, with Fed rates at five and a half. Maybe it'll go a little higher. But I think that's probably what to forecast is you should just assume we're going to be in a higher rate environment 
for the foreseeable time period. I know there's there's expectations that the Fed's going to start cutting in 2024, but that I I personally think that's wishful thinking. I I don't think uh, that you know we're going to have seen inflation tamed, and I don't think the economy is going to cool off that significantly um, for for that that reversal from the Fed at that point. I I I tend to agree. Um... You know, I would love to see, I would love to see rates go down, but I just, it's hard to imagine with this level of employment um, that, yeah. that, that yeah. inflation listen, is going to cool that much. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it comes back and your yeah. you know, inflation's less than 2% and they put the brakes on. But I mean, you know, it, it, it it's funny. It's, it's tricky because, um, you know, from where I sit, it's also very, very confusing because the real estate market has been hit harder in the sense that multifamily or commercial or whatever, yeah, anything that revolves around interest rates has been generally, uh, you know, you've, there's been more pain there. Well, uh, and again, you're, you're talking from a capital or financing structure perspective, right? Because I think rental rates still attract. They're doing great. They're doing great. We're still raising rents. We're still, yeah. you know, so, we're still raising rents and all that stuff, but but it's curious yeah. to see how that 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 all comes to a head, and I guess no one really knows. Yeah. You say you're not an economist. I've I've uh, I've interviewed several economists who say the opposite of each other. So yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. At the end yeah, of the doesn't. day, the question is based on the uh, volatility or inability to predict the future. You know. Yeah. Ogie Berra's well, quote about, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to predict anything, especially about the future. I like that quote. Uh, I do think, I do think that that volatility in, in rates is probably the big, the big part of it's probably behind us. And I think the, I think the assumption should be that we're, we're in a higher interest rate environment for the foreseeable future, right? And, and, I think, and it's actually not at high historically. I mean, it, and, and that's, yeah, and that's the point. Right. That's an important point. I mean, you, you don't have to go back that far. Uh, you can go back to early 2000s and you'll find that mortgage rates are pretty much where we are today, right? And and so that's, you know, low low 7%, 7.5%, that, that kind of range. Uh, and we had a healthy, we had a healthy, uh, real estate environment back in the early 2000s uh, as well. So, you know, I think I think it's a it's a it's basically a need for the financing strategies of these businesses of these acquisitions. I think those need to get addressed. Mm-hmm. But the underlying businesses seem like they're doing just fine, right? So I think right. that you know I think the question is. Will operators kind of muddle through, um, you know, patch up their 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 cap structures, however they can, keep pushing out, keep pushing out, and at some point, rates come down a little bit, and then they're out of the woods, and they you know they can continue on. Um, you know, that's a possibility. I think operators that are significantly in trouble, my guess is, you know, there'll be some wholesale portfolio sales, uh, and those will likely go out to other institutions and larger investors. Um, I actually think. I mean, my my view is that it's going to be not likely that you're going to see lots of distressed opportunities 
coming to the market. Uh, I know, you know, we didn't see it in the equity markets. Uh, you know, people have been waiting for a downturn in the in the in the in the equity markets. Hasn't happened. Market's up twenty percent this year. Uh, I don't necessarily think you're going to see that type of a you know distress situation in certain sectors of the real estate market. I think, I think we, I mean, there is distress for sure, but I think your point is well taken that that may not necessarily reach the retail investor, right? Correct. Like, so, so when you have these, um, you have these large operators that are, are having trouble, it's not, you know, it's not the retail guys who are going to come in and sweep in that is going to be corrected by larger institutions and REITs, yeah. things like that. And yeah. I should say on the other hand of that, on the other side of that, because there is a lot, there is a lot of sort of stuff behind the curtain. Um, there is a, uh, there is, you know, sort of this institutional uh, partnership level distress happens as well, right? Like, for example, an asset itself may not be distressed. It may actually be a cash flowing asset, but it might be a REIT yeah. that has uh, capital needs. And so they're yeah. willing to sell at a loss. And that's yeah. that's where we might be able to capitalize on a few things just based on some partnerships. I think, I think, that's, I think those are the ones that you want to be really proactive on bark. I think when you have a business, whether it's a, a real estate, whether it's uh, an operating business that is doing well, doing everything that it said it was going to, uh, but yet there are structural reasons why a seller needs out. Those are the ones you want to really move fast on because I think those are those are attractive. They're they're tested and you know just a matter of changing ownership to the right to the right set of owners. What um, so in in terms of your clients now you're um, so how do you how are you positioning them in general like are you uh, you know are you are you positioning them just sort of uh, I guess with a template that says okay this is a fairly um, you know this is we're just going to assume that rates are going to be around where they are and we are going to you know buy with the new normal. Um, are you telling them, Hey, don't buy anything right now. I mean, yeah. what's, what's the, yeah. obviously it's, it's I, investor, uh, specific, but yeah, it's, you know, it's invest, yeah, it is investor specific. And so, you know, if somebody, if somebody needs cash in the next year or year or two, you know, I think it's, I think there's an opportunity in the fixed income market on a, on a two year government treasury that pays 5%, no risk. And you're, you know, you're going to get, you're going to keep your capital. You'll be a little bit ahead of inflation and there you go. And there's nothing to it. But I think for investors that are in it for long-term growth, you know, again, it's going to differ investor to investor, what their objectives are and, and, and what their situation is. Um, but my own my own recommendation is is not to sit out this market at this point. Uh, I think I think we are I think there's more risk to sitting it out than than to be deployed. Uh, I think you're going to have you know surprises in terms of a a economy that is going to continue to perform well. The, the major risk, I think, is that it performs a little too well and that we need to we need to take interest rates up again. But I don't think that that would be in the magnitude or severity that that, you know, or anywhere near what what the Fed has done. So if they 
if they bump up the Fed rate by another 25 basis points, 50 basis points, you probably won't see a lot of impact in overall, uh, you know, credit environment. Um, but, you know, that'll just be a little bit more restrictive. And if that's what the Fed needs to do to make sure that, you know, inflation keeps keeps in control, keeps in check, and that we're heading for a bit, bit of a, a softness in the economy, I think that, you know, being deployed now, you can ride through that. And again, if you've, if you've got a longer term perspective, you know, you want to have three, five, seven year type of, of horizons, investment horizons. Uh, and, and I think you'll come out, I think you'll come out fine. I, I do think there is a risk if you, if you sit out now uh, that the market's going to move away from you and you'll end up chasing it. And, and that can be, you know, that can be quite um, damaging to your, your portfolios in the longer term. Well, uh, listen, this has uh, been good stuff and we could we could keep going on for a while and uh, hopefully we can sort of have an ongoing discussion. I think our investors could use uh, your global perspective on things. And uh, and with that, by the way, um, I want to make sure that uh, people know how to get a hold of you. Now, first of all, uh, the broker dealer that Zolfi has is going to be pretty much doing most of what we do through investor club from now on. So if you are an accredited investor, um, make sure to reach out to his broker dealer. How do you, how do you get the, uh, yeah, how do you reach your, you through the broker dealer? Yeah. The broker dealer um, simplest way will, will be to just email me. Uh, that's Zulfi Z U L F E dot Ali A L I at valeritygroup.com and it's v-e-l-e-r-i-t-y valeritygroup.com yeah and if somebody needs uh somebody needs clarification on that certainly shoot me an email bucketwealthformula.com and i'll connect you also um as i mentioned before there is um there has been a lot of people over the last few years who've wanted additional direction um in terms of you know just overall uh, investing. And that's where Valerity Wealth comes in, uh, valeritywealth.com. Um, again, I guess you just uh, email you or go to the website and there's probably a contact form there. Yeah, exactly. There is a, there is a contact form at valeritywealth.com. Uh, or if you want to email me, it's just Zulfi, Z-U-L-F-E at valeritywealth.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Zolfi, and um, I'm looking forward to having you on as sort of a, a regular over time so we can start, you know, kind of uh, getting your your global perspective on everything. It's good to have you on Wealth Formula Podcast, um, and, and thanks for being on. Thank you, Buck. Great to be here. You're right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, again, if you want to get in touch with Zolfi, make sure you Go check out uh, his websites and, um, and and get in contact. Now, next uh, next episode is actually only going to be a couple days away. It's uh, on Wednesday. And that show is actually going to be sort of my take on personal finance. Now, I, I don't want people to think that I'm advocating for doing things the way that I am. There's reasons that I do things the way I do. And part of that is that I have you know, this is what I kind of do for a living, right? So, so I don't really want people to say, well, you know, uh, he, he's advocating for a certain type of investing because, you know, the way I do things, I'm heavily, heavily bent into certain areas and that's not for everyone. It might be for you, 
but I want to at least tell you what I'm thinking about. And so that's what we're going to do next week. That's it for me on this episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, though. This is Buck Joffrey signing up. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.